Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1934, tens of thousands of communist guerrillas flee Jiangxi in an extended retreat through hazardous terrain to Shanxi in the north, while under fire from their nationalist enemies. The Long March, as it became to be known, helped build the legend of the Chinese Communist Party and of its leader, Mao. While on the Long March, Mao has a daughter who was left behind to live with a local family due to the trek's dangers. That event inspired Michael X. Wong's debut novel, Lost in the Long March, about one couple who faced a similar decision whether to leave their child behind, and that decision's repercussions decades later. Michael was born in Funyang, a small coal mining city in China's mountainous Shanxi province. His short story collection, Further News of Defeat, won the 2021 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut short story collection, and was a finalist for a 2021 CLMP Firecracker Award for Fiction. Michael's work has appeared in the New England Review, Greensboro Review, Day One, and Juked, among others. He is currently as a professor of English and Creative Writing at Arkansas Tech University. and lives in Russellville, Arkansas. Today, Michael and I talk about The Long March, what makes it a great setting for a novel, and how its story aligns with many other family stories from modern China. So, Michael, you know, thank you for, for coming on the show to talk about um, Lost in the Long March. Uh, you know, I, think, I mean, The Long March is this, is this big historical event. In China, it's like a big turning point for modern Chinese history, for for the history of the of the Communist Party of China, for the history of kind of Mao Zedong. Um, but what was it about the Long March to make it the the setting for your novel? Uh, thank you so much, Nicholas, for uh, having me, and it's a pleasure to uh, talk with you and um, the Asian Review of Books. Uh, I think when it comes to the Long March, I really think it is that pivotal year that really changed modern Chinese history from that point on. Uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, um, the year before the Long March, he, he almost entirely annihilated um, the communist forces. And um, in some ways, if he was allowed to sort of follow up with his victories um, and, you know, not fight the Japanese first, uh, then, um, you know, I think China would be 
a much different country today. So really the Long March was a time in which the um, communist forces, they, you know, it was thousands of miles through mountains, quicksand, um, swamplands. And um, along the way, they really were allowed to spread their word. Um, before communist forces were mostly in the uh, middle southern area of Jiangxi province. Um, and it, it wasn't until the Long March that, um, you know, uh, villagers all over the United, uh, all over China um, got to know, uh, you know, what communism was about, that kind of idealistic communism that, you know, uh, Mao stood for at that time. Um, the Long March was also this time period that my parents and uh, their parents, so my grandparents, talked about a great deal. Um, I had, uh, you know, some of my wife's uh, grandparents, they, they participated uh, not in the Long March itself, but they were participating in the direct aftermath of the Long March. And um, as, you know, as my parents were talking about it throughout um, my time growing up, um, I, I had a vague idea of what it was about, but I was kind of always in the dark as well. So in some ways, writing this, this novel was a means for me to kind of get to know uh, China's past, uh, understand um, the circumstances of uh, the China that my parents knew and um, you know, I was born in China, but I immigrated really quickly to the United States at the age of six. And um, I, I, you know, grew up here. I grew up mostly in Michigan and New York. Um, and even though at school we were learning about U.S. history and world history at home, my parents were always talking about and referencing Chinese history. And there was that kind of great deal of disconnect um, as I was growing up. And uh, throughout my teens and early 20s that, you know, I, I kind of knew what it was about, but I didn't know what it was about. And it got to a point uh, in my late 20s uh, when I was getting my PhD at Florida State University that I, I was kind of just fed up. I was like, um, I want to know more about uh, how and why China became the country um, that it is today. And um, in a large you know, in a lot of ways, the finger was pointing towards the long march. So I, I kind of was just starting there. Um, and, and it seemed like the more I learned about it, the more I knew about it, um, the more I felt the long march was that kind of pivotal point in Chinese history, both both in terms of how China became later on and sort of my family's kind of history, um, you know, connected. Uh, so I guess... That's sort of why. <laughs> well, let's well let's start talking about um, about the novel um, and maybe some of the characters in it. Um, so one of the one of the protagonists you could say is is Yang, who's um, also one of the books I think most prominent female character. She's a revolutionary. She's a a sniper, I believe. Is that correct? And um, yeah, and and you know, and and she's one of the few women on the on the long march. Um, I wonder if you might talk about kind of what was in your mind when you were creating her character and also how that reflects the history of the time and the history of women in the CCP in the thirties. Right. Um, 
you know, Jung, uh, one of the, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party did a lot of horrific things um, to the country and it put through, it put China through decades of just um, turmoil and uh, millions of people died from starvation um, and uh, the Cultural Revolution. Um, but one thing that the CCP did do on some level was gender equality. Um, you know, one of Mao's um, famous kind of quotes was, uh, you know, men and women were created equally under heaven. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of butchering that quote, but um, yeah, so... Uh, on some level, uh, men and women saw a greater degree of equality, um, you know, both in the Communist Party, uh, in the communist forces of the late 1920s, 1930s. But after 1949, there was, you know, there was um, female Red Guards. There was a lot of um, uh, women in the armed forces. You know, a lot of them um, didn't really do a lot of fighting, but they were in the dance or singing, you know, propaganda kind of tropes. Um, for as for Jung as a character, uh, I definitely saw her as that kind of bridge between um, the uh, communist idealistic female versus the the sort of um, traditional female, you know, seen in the late eighteen hundreds, um, early nineteen hundreds, pre. Uh, you know, uh, pre-communist party chi uh, Chinese women, and um, you know, before uh, before 1949, um, a lot of really wealthy men they were still practicing polygamy. Um, it was very very common, even in the 1920s 1930s, for uh, men to have uh, multiple wives. You know, very famous. Chinese, um, you know, the very famous Chinese writer Lu Xun, he had a wife, you know, that was kind of um, uh, in the villages um, that wasn't educated. Um, they were kind of arranged to be married. And when he studied in Japan, uh, he uh, met another woman there and then he married again. So um, it was it was it was very common at that time, this type of polygamy. And even more so, um, a lot of uh, a lot of women in in um, even in prominent kind of uh, households, they were not even given a name. Right. So if you have a family who's named Zhang and, their, you know, their surname is is Zhang and they have a lot of daughters, the um, the daughters would not even be named. They would be named um, second daughter of Zhang, third daughter of Zhang. Um, so, and Jung as a character in the beginning, when she was a young uh, woman, she was kind of married off as the um, second wife of a kind of wealthy and abusive um, nobleman. And um, she saw the communist forces as this kind of escape where, uh, people were created m not more equally, that kind of idealistic equality of communism, but, you know, we all know it's not true equality. And then from there, she's able to uh, make her own way, to develop her own kind of personality, to um, um, be a sort of force in the, chi uh, in, in the Chinese Communist Army. Um, you do make a really good point, Nicholas, to say that there wasn't a lot of females in the Chinese army at that time. So in the 1930s, uh, when the Chinese communist forces were just starting, there was an entire um, brigade of Chinese 
female um, forces, but the way in which I sort of set up in the novel in which, you know, these kind of female soldiers were interdispersed between the different platoons, that was that was kind of fabricated, I, I have to admit. Um, but once they were on the long march themselves, things got so chaotic that, um, um, you know, it, it, it was hard to kind of separate um, the regiments, and a lot of them were combined into the same kind of unit. Um, so by 1935, 34, you know, um, what's, what I portray in the novel is truer. Um, but I do feel maybe Jung as a character, um, I tried my best to make her as realistic um, as, 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 as possible at that time. You know, and so, so the book is kind of um, organized into kind of five sections, each focusing on, on a different character. And, you know, perhaps my, my favorite section of the book is the one that focuses on um, Haiwu, uh, who's a, who's a, disabled veteran um he's not ideological he's very self-pitying um but he's perhaps you know the most the most grounded and, and caring person in the novel and i should probably just say for context um this is the part of the novel where for this is the part of the novel where um young and her partner ping have just had a child um and they're deciding what to do um with their child little turnip um i just want to talk about a little about, about about what was in your mind as you were kind of writing that bit of the book um writing writing Haiwu the character? I, I really appreciate that question, Nicholas, because Haiwu is a character um, he's rarely asked about in interviews, and um, which I kind of find which, which I found kind of disappointing because um, Haiwu is one of my favorite characters. I think part three is, you know, part three and part five were the two parts that personally I am most proud of, um, but uh, they're, they're kind of rarely asked in an interview. Um, I see Hai Wu as this sort of character that in a lot of ways represents, um, uh, you know, a modern Chinese identity in a sense, like the Chinese identity um, from the 1920s all the way until, you know, 1970s, 1980s. Um, he kind of, he is definitely very self-pitying, um, but he is self-pitying in the sense that um, after he has finished pitying himself for a couple of months or maybe a year or so, he uh, comes back and he laughs off his wounds and um, he's kind of uh, reinvigorated and um, he's able to continue on. And, and, and I think that really represents in some ways the Chinese spirit. Um, I think the Chinese population, they have gone through so many traumatic events in over the span of the last 200 years. You have the Taiping Rebellion, who, you know, which uh, uh, one of the bloodiest rebellions throughout history, you know, you, you, you have upwards of 20 to 30 million people dying from the Taiping Rebellion. And then you have uh, the Chinese Communist Rebellion, and then you have World War II, and then you have the Chinese Civil War finishing up, uh, you know, from 1945 to 1949. And the, the suffering of the Chinese people are not finished even after that. So throughout the 50s, you have the Great Leap Forward 
record and um, the massive famine, you know, you saw in 1959 and the early 1960s. And then you would think, okay, that has to be the end of the suffering. But no, in the 60s and in the 70s, you have even greater suffering um, through the Cultural Revolution. And somehow, in some way, um, you know, China and its citizens were able to kind of persevere through it. And, um, you know, we, we remember it, but we also laugh at it um, in a very similar way as Haiwu. So um, I, 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 like, I kind of find Haiwu's character to be, um, at least for me, really indicative of this sort of Chinese national identity. And it's, it's, it's really horrific how much suffering um, they've suffered, but it's, it's, it's also kind of amazing, but also very, very sad that we're able to just um, soak it up and um, persevere and in some ways forget about it afterwards. I mean, it, it also comes down to um, that kind of old idea of mandate of heaven and um, Confucianism, and um, which, which kind of says that if a government, if a dynasty is no longer providing the people with what they need, they're allowed to rebel, and it's just the natural order of things, which I find to be kind of ridiculous because, I mean, that's just how it is in every sort of country. You don't need a mandate of heaven to to really, you know, give the citizens that privilege. It's kind of like um, the citizens, you know, you, 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 you are allowed to rebel, but it's, you know, I think in uh, China, you would call that bai hua, right, or fei hua, something like, you know, know, it's it's uh it's not needed and it's obvious um but anyways so i think haiwu for for me um symbolizes that kind of chinese national identity and spirit you know kind of remaining in this in this particular part of the novel you know i kind of the the pivot in the novel is when um yang and ping uh they they have this child and they have to decide whether to leave um little turnip behind uh while they're in i guess in this in almost this kind of random chinese rural chinese village um which they eventually do they eventually do decide to leave the child behind and not take them with them on the not take little turnip with them on the rest of the long march you know was this was this a common practice during the long march i mean were there people just kind of left behind um in in western china or is this or is this a scenario that that you kind of thought would be interesting to put in the in this in this front in this uh historical event it's uh yeah it absolutely did happen while they were on the long march um i mean mao himself he had a daughter while on the long march and um he uh left his daughter his newborn daughter um, in uh, Sichuan province, you know, in a village um, rough in the similar area as Yang and Ping. Um, in fact, that was kind of the um, one of the inspirations for the novel was just um, knowing that people, while they were on this long march, um, they were, you know, these soldiers, they were covering anywhere from 10 um, to 20 kilometers a day. Um, they were, you know, and in really horrific conditions, but they were um, falling in love. They were having kids. Um, and then they were abandoning, 
they were abandoning their kids wherever they could, um, wherever they have a local villager that was willing to um, take them in. Um, because um, it's very true that uh, at any point where um, you have a crying baby, then the enemy can easily know your whereabouts. And um, that, that just would not, you know, it's carrying a baby um, uh, while in battle, while fleeing from enemy forces is, is just, uh, uh, you know, it's just a death sentence for the baby. Um, So that definitely happened. That's definitely uh, true. It happened to Mao. Mao never recovered um, his uh, daughter, um, even though, he, you know, he led uh, search parties um, to Sichuan, um, where um, him and, and, and other soldiers, they tried to reconnect with uh, um, the children that, that they've lost. Some of them did eventually find their lost son or daughter, but very few. Most of them were lost. Um, and, um, you know, a large part of that was because in the 1950s, um, the uh, Sichuan province was devastated um, by a lot of kind of natural disasters and by uh, the the kind of Japanese forces um, invading into Sichuan. Um, so uh, it was it was really really hard. Um, there was, you know, like the Beggars Guild was something that I also mentioned in part three, um, and then it becomes like a bigger deal in part four and in part five of the novel that uh that was a very much a thing as well there's there was beggars guilds um in every province in every major city and uh one of the things that they did unfortunately was um they took in uh orphans and um they amputated limbs and um, they did just a lot of kind of horrific things, um, mutilation of of the body in order for um, these kids to appear more pathetic on the streets and to, uh, you know, be able to beg for more money. So that that was a really big deal um, in the 1960s, 70s and, and, and 80s. Um, 90s. I, I mean, even nowadays, you can occasionally, um, if you get go to um, you know popular kind of beggar spots in some of the cities, you'll see um, people with with missing limbs um, um, begging. So um, it's it's kind of still still a thing right now, even. Um, but in terms of whether or not you know kids from uh, kids that were born along the long, long march joining these beggars guilds. Um, I think that was kind of a leap of, a, of, a, of, of imagination uh, on my part. Yeah. Um, so, then the, so then you said the novel kind of then jumps forward, you know, to um, the Japanese occupation, then 1978. Um, I guess why kind of, why do you want to include these kind of skips in time forward? I think... Uh, skips in time really helps a novel feel um feel larger feel uh that has a grander broader scope um that's something that i kind of wanted in in terms of an initial ambition for the novel i kind of wanted the novel to be an um intergenerational novel um, I did think, you know, coming back and revising it and, and, and just looking at it now, I did feel almost as if I spent too much time 
uh, in the first two parts, um, describing um, the pre-march, you know, the the uh, situation and the army and the movement and the battles uh, before the long march actually began. So I was, um, you know, if I had to write the novel all over again and uh, have a different version of it, that's something that that, that I would definitely um, think about more is that kind of balance. Um, as for, uh, you know, 1978, I, I mean, what, what, what really, um, struck me and made me write about that time period was one, I think it's another time period in which China underwent dramatic change. Um, Mao died in 1977 and then, um, you know, Deng Xiaoping, he was instated as, um, chairman, and then he brought forth the four modernizations, um, and then he opened China up to the West. And it, it was really 1978 after the Gang of Four was captured and executed um, that uh, China slowly, well, slowly at first, and then rapidly developed its economy and became sort of the country that we that we see it as today. Um, and I think uh, I, I definitely wanted my novel to cover that part of um, Chinese history because I saw it, I see the novel as um, both like asking this question, um, the, the soldiers, the main characters, they lost their son in the novel, but did China lose a sense of itself you know, on on this journey, on this journey um, through revolution, on this journey to modernity. And I think um, that part of the novel really helps kind of bridge the gap between the 1930s and um, China today. Um, so, and I, and I think it, it's, it's also emotionally more impactful to sort of see this kind of um, turn of fortunes, you know, the entire time, um, hai Wu was sort of this third wheel. Um, and in some ways, even though Ping and Yong, they were, they have become um, big shots in the party by part, by part five. Hopefully I'm not spoiling anything. Um, but Hai Wu is kind of more fortunate in other ways. So that kind of reversal of fortune, um, you know, the entire time parts one and two, um, they were both Jung and uh, Ping. They were foreshadowing this um, idealistic future um, of um, what China would become after the revolution has ended. And I think in some ways it's really important um, to show uh, the difference in how they envisioned China and how China, you know, what China actually was. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, when the novel ended. So for those reasons, uh, I kind of wanted to kind of transition very rapidly in time in part five. You know, and I mean, and, and I mean, just kind of sticking with those with those last two sections, I mean, you don't, I mean, the novel doesn't tie up loose ends, doesn't tell you what happens to, um, to little turnip, it doesn't tell you whether the, the man young and ping meet uh, in part five, really is their son. I think there's a heavy implication that it that he's not. Um, but you know, I, I I potentially saw that as like as a reflection of just how many um, how there's still a lot of unknowns, uh, still a lot of there's still a little documentation, still information about um, people who kind of made it through the chaos of Chinese modern history, whether it's the Long March or the occupation or the Cultural Revolution. Um, 
I mean, how how I guess how easy or more likely how difficult has it been for people in China to really get answers to some of these questions about what happened to uh, members of their family during during these these periods of turmoil? There's um there's a lot of digging that's required if uh, and persistence that's required if people really want to know. Um, you know, about their families that has been on the long march. It's, it, it was a really, really chaotic time period. Um, I know uh, I've, I've done a fair bit of research for the novel and uh, I followed a couple of people who's, who's, you know, descendants um, kind of searched for their grandparents and to kind of know what their grandparents uh, went through while, while on the long march. And it's, um, you know, reading some of the uh, transcriptions um, from the Chinese to English, um, it's, you know, a lot of it is just, uh, a lot of it is just kind of logistical information. Like we were in this province at this time uh, from the villagers donated uh, this much uh, flour and, and this many pounds of, uh, you know, um, food to us. And then um, and then really, really traumatic events like, oh, we crossed this bridge and uh, 400 people died. You know, those were kind of summarized uh, in a couple of sentences. Um, there was not a lot of um, elaboration um, from from this from these um, soldiers who who actually knew how to write. And a lot of these they came from letters uh, after the fact. Um, a lot of these also came from. Uh, uh, you know, the 1960s and 1970s, when um, people were were asked to uh, were asked kind of personal and political questions, just to um, because you know some of them they were accused of being bourgeois, some of them were accused of of um, you know being uh, less than less than Marxist, you know less than perfect Marxist. Um, uh, 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 soldiers, and they were forced to kind of write these um, pseudo narratives of what they went through. Um, so some of them they were kind of colored. Um, some of them um, were biased. They were not completely accurate. So you have to kind of read between the lines um, in in terms of a lot of these uh, journal entries and these kind of uh, firsthand accounts. Um, but I think the benefits of that is that um, it allows the writer to fill in the blanks. Um, I think uh, for me, um, the way in which I do research is I try to, um, well, first I have to find the voice of the novel and just the tone, um, you know, how comedic, how serious, um, who is the main character and, and what do they want. Once I've found those type of things, um, then I would go back and I would try to do um, as much research as I can. I would read, um, you know, books and books, books upon books on the subject. Uh, and, you know, my research period would usually last between one and a half months to two months. And uh, afterwards, um, I would try to sort of forget about the period. I would try to go back to the narrative and uh, just let my imagination, um, you know, run wild to a certain degree. Um, and of course, there are certain times in my writing process where I would need to, um, you know, put in brackets, insert good detail or insert period specific detail here. Um, and then I would look up again um, when I'm revising, um, you know, those chapters in, in my novel. Um, but for the most part, uh, 
I think in some ways, um, because uh, there's not super exact um, information on the time period, it, it kind of gives the writer more leeway to um, make more details up, um, to think about the character's motivation. And it just really frees up the uh, writer um, to do what they do. You know, so I'd like to kind of ask a question, perhaps about you for kind of the last question of the interview. Um, you know, I, I looked into your into into your bio before um, before this interview. You know, you you moved to you moved from China to the U.S. as an early age. Um, you know, both this and your previous book um, are kind of set in these chaotic periods of of Chinese history. Um, and I guess, what has it been like to kind of return to these settings in your fiction? Um, I think especially as the current relationship between the U.S. and China um, seems to be going through a, a down patch at the moment, to put it like yeah. that. <laughs> um, it is uh, really um, harrowing a lot of times when I'm writing about these subject matters, um, especially when the subject matters um, are close to... Uh, my family's background. Um, it, it kind of, it's more for my story collection, further of a, the further news of defeat than it was for Lost in a Long March. Uh, many parts of further news of defeat, many stories in that collection, they dealt with experiences that uh, my great grandparent went through. Um, the title story in that collection, um, it was about the uh, Japanese occupation of a local village. And, and basically, um, the Japanese, they came to this local village in Shenzi province, and they kind of took away some of the um, young men to go and work in a local coal mine. And then the rest of the village, after they were, you know, after a couple of weeks, after they were done, um, you know, stripping the, the village of the local kind of labor force, um, they, they forced all of the people into the town square and then they threw them into the well. Um, that was loosely based off of my grandmother's experience. Um, her grandfather was the village chief at the time. And um, when the Japanese came, he you know went up to a, to a large hill to kind of greet them and they just uh, shot him on the spot. Um, and uh, it, in a lot of ways, I feel, Early on, I questioned um, whether or not I'm even allowed to write this. Um, I, I've kind of lived a relatively cushy life in the United States um, and uh, been given kind of great privilege to pursue uh, an education, to study writing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it took a lot of debate in my mind, just, just am I even allowed to kind of write about this stuff? But on another part, um, on another on, on another level, um, it's you know like if I don't write about this stuff, who will? Um, this is um, my family's kind of story after all. Um, my grandmother, she she is illiterate in Chinese. Um, she she you know passed this down orally, and it's uh, you know I, I I'm pretty sure there's there's no other writer at least um, in the village that she grew up in, which is a neighboring village than the village that my father um, was born and grew up in. So, um, it, you know, it, it, going back to these experiences, 
um, it's difficult, but um, and 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 I feel almost as if um, I shouldn't kind of exploit these experiences. But if I don't, then then who else will will will, will write about these um, situations as well? Who will remember these situations? Um, so it's always a difficult process. Um, uh, my next couple of books, they're gonna, you know, I've, I've, I've planned out my next two novels, they're gonna be a little bit different. Um, they're still gonna have a historical vein, some of them, but um, they're, they're, they're not gonna be as um, uh, centered around realism as my story collection or my uh, novel. Well, that's, that's kind of preemptive. The actual last question I, I ask um, as, as we close off the interview, um, well, I mean, well, first of all, you know, thank you. Thank you again, Michael, for joining us on the Three Books podcast to talk about um, Lost in a Long March. You know, again, to kind of ask the actual last question, um, which is uh, where can people find your work? And um, if you could talk a bit about, about your next project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you, you guys can buy uh, my novel, Lost in a Long March, from... Uh, Abrams Books, uh, their website, um, or, you know, where, wherever you prefer to buy your books. Um, my story collection was published by um, Autumn House Press. Um, you can purchase it through, uh, you know, their website or just, you know, any place that you would like to buy your books. Um, I have just finished a draft of my second novel. It's um, titled The Red Synthetic Utopia of the Mind. And I know that's a mouthful and maybe it's going to be changed uh, when it when it comes out, if it comes out. Um, but it, it kind of deals with um, uh, immigration, video games, and there's an element of kind of dystopia as well. Um, the main character, um, her name is um, Harriet Chu, and she's immigrated to the United States on a video game visa. She uh, she's playtesting um, this artificial intelligence, and she merges her minds with the AI and um, the AI kind of changes the world um, into one where China and the United States, their places switch. So, you know, the, the U.S. has kind of become this uh, third world country and China has become this uh, this first world sort of power um, and then chaos ensues. So, so, so that's my second novel. Um, my uh, third novel, um, uh, which I'm still in the planning stages, but it's called the um, it's called Jeff Bezos is the first emperor of China. And basically in this novel, um, you know, this is uh, maybe 30 years in the future. Jeff Bezos, he is a very old man. Amazon has become this uh, even more powerful um, corporation uh, and they're selling you know, goods all over the world. Um, Bezos, he has like uh, research facilities all over the world and he has discovered time travel. Um, and he also has discovered the ability to um, change races. So he makes himself Asian first and then he goes back in time um, to the, um, the first dynasty, to the Tin dynasty uh, thousands of years ago. And um, uh, you know, because it's it's there's this kind of Chinese kind of um, uh, fable rumor that um, the first emperor was was searching for the elixir of immortality, 
And um, so Jeff Bezos goes back in time. He finds um, the elixir immortality. He makes himself young again, but he's still Chinese. And uh, he becomes the first emperor of China uh, and using all of his um, bureaucratic skills that he's learned from, you know, running and building Amazon, he uh, runs the, uh, he starts the corrupt bureaucratic system, um, you know, in Chinese history. So that is the idea for uh, my uh, third novel. Uh, thank you so much, Nicholas, for allowing me to, to talk about um, my next two books. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, rate us, recommend Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Professor John D. Wong, author of Hong Kong Takes Flight, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Global Hub, 1930s to 1998. But before then, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Nicholas, for having me.